It's condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and today on this episode, I am fortunate enough to be joined by Lisa Weinhold. That's how you say your last name? That right? is correct. All Good right, job. Right. I'm very happy I got that right the first time. <laughs> Lisa is the principal flute, flutist, flute or flutist? Flutist is what we generally say. All I right. Think. There's the definitive in case anybody was confused. Not flautist unless you're German. All right. So the principal <laughs> flutist of the Alabama Symphony Orchestra and has been for since before the orchestra... Yes, yeah, since right? the uh, well, I um, when I originally came to the Alabama Symphony, I came as the assistant principal and second flutist, and then when the orchestra folded, I was fortunate enough to go to Savannah and be the principal flutist there. And then when it reformed, I came back and uh, was um, put in the position of principal flute and gained tenure there, and then okay. principal since then. Yep. Yeah, we'll get to all that because I'm really curious, kind of yep. what your thoughts were about being in an orchestra that went that, through something like that, and yep. kind of how you. You know, obviously Savannah was the thing you were able to do, but kind of how you just navigated right. those all those all those waters. But we'll yep. get there in probably like an hour and fifteen minutes <laughs> from now. So uh, Lisa is uh, just a, a great presence in the orchestra. I think uh, obviously as principal flute, her artistic vision is being realized a lot, and so I hope to be able to talk to her about how she prepares for that as well. But to get started, I think um, we should just go with where you were born, where mm-hmm. you grew up, how you kind of got as your early musical life got started. Sure. And uh, we'll go from there. So, uh, I was born, actually, in Landstuhl, Germany, which is by Ramstein Air Force Base. My dad, um, although he was military in the Korean War, at that point he was teaching, uh, he was a civilian teaching high school to the American kids uh, whose parents were in the military at Ramstein. Um, we lived there until I was a little bit over three, and then we moved to uh, Washington State for a couple of years, and then on to Alaska, and the genesis of moving from overseas, from Germany to um, uh, Washington State in Alaska. His dad had been a high school science biology teacher, and he wanted to be a practicing uh, fisheries biologist, and uh, that's sort of where the jobs were, so we moved from um, Germany to Washington State, a couple places in Washington State, including in the middle of a cherry orchard, which was really fun when you were four or five. Yeah. And then on up to Kodiak Island for about a year and a half, two years, and then to Anchorage, Alaska, right outside Anchorage, a little town called Eagle River. And, uh, and I spent my entire growing up there until I went away to high school for my senior year in Michigan and then on to college. So that's... So when did you get your start uh, with the flute? Was it, I assume it was sometime in in Anchorage? How did yes. you get started with that? Yeah. My mom is, um, my mom's first career was a high school choral and general music teacher and uh, in Minnesota. And uh, she played piano, obviously. And so as uh, young kids, we had this big old, huge, upright that was a mess, but it was what was available to buy in Alaska for cheap at that point. And so we started on piano when I was, I guess, seven or so. And then uh, through, I think as is typical for many people who play wind instruments, um, I started on flute in the fifth grade and through the school music program and continued on from from there. I had a great um, 
junior high band director who said, you need to go to this summer music camp where I met my first private flute teacher. And she guided me until she said, you need to get out of Alaska if you really want to do this and help me go to my senior year at Interlochen Arts Academy. And then uh, from there, went on to college and so forth. Cool. Were you a particularly studious flute player as a young individual, or did you kind of just enjoy it? And the more you did it, you realized, I kind of like this. I want to make this into a career. No, I really loved it from the beginning. I was pretty, um, I was a good student in school anyway. So anything I undertook, I really was very um, focused on doing and doing well. Um, I was just that kind of kid, probably the annoying kid in class who asks if we're going to have a test on this later or today (laughs) even because I loved doing it. Um, And yeah, I just I loved playing. My mom always um, jokes that, you know, people used to ask her, well, you know, how do you get her to practice? And she'd always say, how do I get her to stop practicing? Because, it, you know, sometimes it's a little bit much. But no, I just really enjoyed it. I think um, as kind of a naturally introverted person, it was a good way to kind of have permission to go into my room by myself and just do my own thing. Um, I grew up with, uh, um, I'm sure talk about my dogs later, but I grew up with a St. Bernard who was always with me and she would sleep on my feet while I practiced. And it was just um, something I really enjoyed, enjoyed doing. I enjoyed getting better through, through practicing. And, um, that's just was kind of my uh, very quickly from the time I'd say maybe probably eighth grade or so. Um, I just knew that that's what I wanted to do. Did you excel around eighth grade or was it kind of a harder road? For N- you? No, it was I was, you know, it's Alaska. So it was pretty easy to be a big fish in a fairly small pond sure. music wise there. Um, our high school was very small. I think the band was 26 or 30. 27 players. So, um, you know, I was first flute pretty much from the, from the get go. Um, and then there was a youth symphony in town and that was a little bit more competitive and that kind of got me, got me going. And that was my first introduction to playing in an orchestra. I always liked listening and my parents had, um, records, albums of orchestral music, and we'd listen to those, and I always liked it. But um, the experience of going away actually to the music camp and getting to play in an orchestra there for the first time was just so cool because you had just your own part. You didn't have to share it with anybody. And, you <laughs> know, right. you got every pretty much every note you played was a solo in some way or another. So, sure. um, yeah, and I just I, I loved it and loved orchestral music from the from the beginning much better actually than I ever loved playing solo flute music. Yeah. So what was your experience you mentioned you had gone to Interlochen your uh-huh. senior year. What was your experience like there versus your experience in it in was, Anchorage? Yeah. What was, you know, how were your eyes open so to speak? Uh I think it would have I imagine mm-hmm. your eyes were open quite a bit just seeing oh, the level yeah. of flute playing and did you right. feel like you were on par with what you saw there? Uh, or? Not not at all. It was, you know, going from like I said being a big fish in a little pond and I you know, I'd done kind of the, you know, the typical repertoire as you kind of come up through uh, high school where I'd played, oh, Handel sonatas and Bach sonatas and a Mozart concerto and um, had just started kind of into doing some of the French uh, recital pieces. And um, I remember going to the audition for the placement in the ensembles in Interlochen. And I think I was playing a movement of a Mozart concerto. And the guy ahead of me was playing the Nielsen concerto. And I didn't even know what piece that was. 
I was blown away with all of the notes he was playing, how hard it was, um, and just how well he was playing it. And, um, just, and not only him, just sort of the general level across all the instruments, um, was, yes, it was a huge wake up call for me. Um, and that's, I think what my teacher in Alaska realized I needed, not that, um, I thought that I was so great, but I think she knew just that the level of playing out there in the lower 48, as we called it, was just, (laughs) um, a lot higher and um, if I wanted to do a career in music, I needed to get out and see that and experience it. So I started out as uh, sixth chair in the wind ensemble at Interlochen. They had um, four in the orchestra and then however many else went into the wind ensemble, however many other flutes there were. I think there were 10 or 11. And uh, by the end of the year, I'd worked my way up into being the the fourth chair in the orchestra. So I worked like a dog that sure. year to really, um, to really improve. And, um, it was, it was a really great place for that. I mean, just the, like I said, the level of your colleagues and your peers, I think always raises your, um, playing hopefully no matter where you are, whether it's a school or an professional orchestra or a chamber music group, um, dog training for me, yeah, you know, yeah. the people that you're around, uh, hopefully will challenge you to be better at whatever you do. So do you think it's possible to succeed on a on a big level by yourself? Or do you think it's essential to get into a place where you surround yourself with people that are better than you? I think if you're trying to do anything that's uh, especially, well, I think it's true just in general that that's true. But I think especially when you're trying to do anything that has to do with um, a, a group, an ensemble, whether it's a chamber music ensemble or um, an orchestra, uh, yeah, the people around you are who are going to make you better. Or I think it's possible, sadly, if you have people around you who don't have a good work ethic. I see this in some of my students, depending on where they are and um, which program in a band program or so forth. If there's an attitude of, um, not a good work ethic, for instance, I think that can drag you down too. Sure. even as hard as you might try to have a good one. Uh, it, it certainly makes a difference when the people around you have the same uh, ethos to, to work hard and to prove. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. The idea that who you surround yourself with has a pretty big impact on how successful yep. you can ultimately be. And it's like you said, it's not just how hard you want to try to have a good mm-hmm. work ethic. But if you're surrounded by people who don't, it's impossible, I think, actually, to not let that creep in. And beyond that, just the amount of support you'll get from like-minded right. people or the amount of support you will not receive from Correct. people who are more negative than you and the limiting f- effect that mm-hmm. can have on you if you're surrounded Absolutely. by people who are also go-getters when you say i think i'm going to do that competition those people are going to say absolutely go right. do that you'll learn a lot even if you don't win you'll learn a lot right. but the negative people will say i don't know like right it's going to be hard you know so i think <laughs> i just think it's very important right. that and you can succeed without uh, a huge support system but basically at any point trying to seek that out whether it's your immediate surroundings or you have right. to go find it i think it can have a pretty big Absolutely. Impact on you. So, yep. After uh, interlocking, where did you do your undergraduate studies? Uh, I went on to Peabody uh, Conservatory. I had uh, actually 
thought at the point that I was getting ready to graduate from Interlochen that um, that I wasn't good enough to to really make it in music. I'd gotten accepted at a few music schools, but I hadn't really gotten accepted at any place that I really wanted to go. And um, I'd gotten a big offer and um, scholarship from Boston University in English, which was my other love at that point. I always took extra English courses, even when I got to interlock and I didn't need any more English credits to graduate, but there was a really great teacher. And so I audited two of his classes just to, just to do that because I really loved it. And, um, I done very well on the standardized SAT, PSAT and the English categories. And so both guidance counselors and actually the flute teacher at interlock and basically said, you know, music is a really hard career. Flute is especially hard because it's so competitive. There are so many good players. And, um, you know, we really think you should probably, you know, look to another career, which broke my heart because that's not what I wanted. But um, just an know. example of being around right. that negative <laughs> attitude versus right. people who are going to support you. Yeah, Right. So um, so I said, OK, and, you know, sent in my acceptance to BU, to Boston University and you know, I loved English. So part of it wasn't terribly hard, but I also, it was, you know, I think I was actually probably even at that point, you know, you're a kid and you don't really know. And so I think I was even at that point grieving a little bit for not being able to do what I really wanted to do. Um, as kind of a last, last fun thing, I went to a, uh, summer music camp. My roommate was a clarinetist and she was going to this music camp and orchestral camp called, uh, Symphony School of America. It was in Dodgeville, Wisconsin. And, uh, it sadly doesn't exist anymore. The funny thing is it had, uh, a lot of ties to Alabama. The flute teacher there and the oboe teacher were the uh, my predecessors, the principal flute and oboe in the oh, wow. Alabama Symphony, the Webbers, and um, a couple of people from um, the violin section here. Sadly, Jim Pipkin, who's um, passed away recently, and his wife, Marilyn, uh, were there. And yeah, so it's funny, it has some Alabama yeah, ties to it. Yeah, interesting, yeah. But Anyway, and um, but it was kind of it was sort of a side by side orchestral experience. You would sit with the professionals and play in the orchestra and get lessons with them. And um, I have to give a lot of credit to Venla, the flute teacher there, um, because she sort of identified and she said, look, if you want to do music and you want to do it that badly, that's what you should try. Uh, She said, you can always go back to English. But, you know, I think she, you know, really understood how probably really depressed I was at that point because I was heading into um, a college career that I wasn't really, um, didn't have my heart in. So in July, you know, I started calling up the schools where I'd been accepted and uh, Peabody was the only one that said, sure, we'll we'll still still take you. So I went to Peabody and that's actually where I ended up doing all of my degrees, although with different teachers along along the way. Um, and it was a school that was kind of in turmoil at the point that I went to it. It was in big time financial trouble. And, um, the year that I went, I think maybe, I can't remember exactly, but it was either the first, first year or the second year that Johns Hopkins and Peabody had kind of, uh, gotten a a relationship and Johns Hopkins basically bailed Peabody out. Oh, okay. Yeah. I guess I'd, 
I've yeah. only known them as as the as John the combined Hopkins. thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. No, that was new at that point. Yep. And the facilities were in horrible shape, and um, it was definitely at a you know a down down point for and especially where it is now, it's really come back great. So I kind of agree with you that music is a very difficult career path, not one mm. that's not worth it. I wouldn't mm-hmm. say, uh, especially you know if you end up making it. So I believe, though, people, generally speaking, have to decide at some point, this is the thing I'm going to do. I'm going to do the work necessary. I'm going to spend the hours in the practice room, whatever it is. So had you decided by the time you were in at Peabody, this is what I want to do? I want to win an orchestra Mm -hmm. job? Or when when did you know that that was the thing you wanted to pursue? Well, I think... When I when I talked at the with Venlet this summer thing and she and she saw because she saw I think even as someone who was you know choosing to go into English that I was still working really hard at being a good flute player it wasn't just sort of a lark to me to go oh let's just go to this summer camp and you know mess around and uh, play the flute a little bit so but then once I really made that jump and that commitment to. Uh, to going to Peabody, it was sort of a continuation of where I'd been at Interlock and which was realizing that I was in a deficit position from many of my peers and colleagues of that age. They just had more experience with a lot of things, with repertoire, with teachers, with master classes, with camps, with even the uh, the instrument that they played. Uh, I didn't have a very good instrument at that point. I think I was still playing on my Gemeinhardt flute mm-hmm. at that point. So it was, um, I really, yeah, at that point, I think I really did make a commitment. It was a little bit tough because the teacher that I had for the first year there, I wish that I had been able to study with him further on down my my road of of flute playing his Who name was, was that? his oh, name's oh, that's fine his name's Britton Johnson and um he was uh Kincaid William Kincaid was the principal flute in the Philadelphia Orchestra and taught at Curtis for many years and was sort of the uh godfather of American flute playing and uh Brit had studied with him and then come to the Baltimore Symphony and at the point that I started studying with him. He had just retired the year before and uh, was still planning on teaching at Peabody, but his wife um, had gotten, I forget what kind of cancer, but had gotten cancer in March and had passed away in May. And so he had really had a tough time because they had planned on his retirement and traveling and doing all kinds of things. Sure, yeah. So, uh, and you go in as a, you know, 17, 18-year-old at that point to study with someone. And I knew about his life circumstance, but I don't think I'd understood just how profoundly it affected him and his outlook on life in general. And he was not in the best of health. He um was overweight and smoked and um it was it was actually funny my lessons <clears throat> were at uh nine in the morning eight or nine in the morning I was his first one of the day and my job it was his the lessons were on the fourth floor of the uh preparatory building they called it it was the practice building and studio building and there was an old old elevator that you could take up with the gate that would close and uh but sometimes uh, that wasn't working and when that wasn't working he would cancel lessons because he couldn't climb the four flights of stairs wow to get up there wow so but most of the time it was working and they had an elevator attendant who would who would do it and uh but my job was to stop by his mailbox in the office get his mail 
go to the uh, the snack machines, get him a Coke and a Snickers bar and take it up for the lesson. So I would take that up and he would sit and read his mail while he was teaching me and or teaching whoever and smoke a more cigarette across the room. <laughs> from and now we laugh about it because I can't imagine any place where that would be yeah. allowable. Yeah. But, you know, it was that was quite a while ago. So and he I think uh, it was it was just it was a tough year for me because I was trying to work hard at, I think, at a sort of a deficit about things. And his style of teaching had a lot to do with pitting individual players in his studio against each other and pointing out your weakness in uh perspective to theirs. So I can still remember Patty Kazmartzik because that was who he decided we were the pair that would pit against each other. And um, I think having peers like we were talking about that help you come along is a great thing. I think even, and I try and not do this as a teacher, I think trying to encourage personal competitions is not such a great idea. I would agree with that. um, (laughs) So, and it's funny because later, like two or three years later along, we, uh, we sat and talked to each other, she and I, because we hated each other, you know, and it, not in a, you know, we're going to do anything about it. But he, she said he was always pointing you out as you just had such a beautiful sound and phrased so well. And, and I said, he was always telling me about your technique and I really needed to get technique like yours and I needed to work harder. And uh, so anyway, kind of kind of funny. But a lot of times I think teachers can teach us what not to do as well as Absolutely, what, yeah. what to well, that's do. That's a healthy way to look at it, I think, right. for sure, yeah. But, uh, he just his health was declining and Peabody realized, I think, that it was not just me, but that, you know, things were not going well. What I wish about um, just as a quick aside to that, I think if I had had more physical playing capabilities at that point, I had problems in my playing that I really needed help with it. I think he was just such a natural player. He did not know how to address And what he did have that I wish that I could go back now and study with him or play for him or even just talk to him about is that uh, old Kincaid Philadelphia Orchestra Curtis approach to music and approach to phrasing because he was a wonderful musician and a great flute player. I just needed more nuts and bolts at that point. And he didn't he didn't really know how to give that. So they hired Tim Day who was the present at that point principal in the Baltimore Symphony. And he was much more helpful that way. He's now in the, he's the principal of the San Francisco Symphony. And then uh, eventually uh, Robert Willoughby uh, came to Peabody and he's who I did my graduate school work with. And really the person that I probably credit more than anybody else with um, why I'm a person with a job in a symphony today. He just was an amazing teacher, an amazing musician, knew how to both diagnose problems in your playing and how to get you to the point of fixing them Um, was a great, even as I kind of went out into the world to audition and so forth, was just a great mentor along the way of of, um, getting, getting flute players there. And I think if you look at the across the orchestras today, um, I'd say probably fully 50 to 60% of the people playing um, have had some contact with Bob Willoughby, whether it's through him directly 
or through having uh, studied with someone sure. who's studied with him. So that's incredible. Anyway, yeah. That's awesome that you have that person in your life as such yeah. an important person yeah. too. Not yeah. maybe a student of a no. I of you the know player, but, as yeah. you got as you kind of got older and into it, instead of calling him Mister Willoughby, he'd say, "Oh, well, just call me Bob." And I never got to that point. I never felt like I could really do that. So it was just I'd call him Uncle Bob. You know, oh, I'd nice. call him up and yeah. say, "Uncle Bob, I'm going to be." And he moved eventually to New Hampshire. And until uh, last year, he just passed away. Last year, he was still at the age of 95 teaching at the Longy School of Music in wow. Boston. He's just a, a you know great great player, great teacher. So very lucky. My high school band director, his name is Terry Rush mm-hmm. in Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, when we were in high school, he was Mr. Rush, of course. Right. <laughs> and then, you know, relatively recently, within the past four or five years, I've started to go back and there's an ensemble called the Lincoln Municipal Band that right. I'll play a cool. solo with. Yeah. And he plays and conducts in that group. Nice. So it's been kind of cool to go back mm-hmm. and he's like a colleague now instead right. of my teacher. Right. And so uh, I was just chatting with him before one mm-hmm. of the con. This is a couple of years ago. And I-, I was saying, it's really great to be able to play with you on the same stage, Mr. Rush. This is really cool for me. And he's like, you can call me Terry now. And I was like, <laughs> I just don't think that's going to be possible. I know, I know. What's <laughs> ingrained in can, our brains yeah. when we're, you know, 18, yeah, 19, like, in my case, 20 with, you know, Uncle Bob. I'm right. like, oh, no, I can't. The, you're, you can't be Bob. That's right. not right. That's it's just all not due right. respect. You will be Mr. Rush for the rest of my life. Right, right. And honestly, I think I would have been more comfortable with Mr. Willoughby for most sure. most of my, but uh, I think he was more comfortable at that point, you know, not being Mr. Right. Willoughby. Right, yeah. So, no, it's... And, yeah, I understand certainly the term of respect, like you said, when it's ingrained right. so much, right. as especially as a young person. Right. Um, so I don't know. Okay. I, I kind of have one, too, just like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, we can uh, skip ahead after the graduate work mm-hmm. at Peabody. What was the next step? Did you – um, how long after that was the Alabama – well, I, uh, as I think many young musicians, you know, kept going on the degree track because it uh, kept student loans in abatement Absolutely. for a while. Yep, we know <laughs> and, that struggle. Uh, and so I, um, I had gotten my undergraduate. I was fortunate because I think a lot of the uh, training I had at Interlock and I was able to place out of a lot of the basic uh, first year classes at Peabody. So I actually finished my bachelor's in three years, took a year off worked as a secretary actually for the faculty at Peabody and auditioned for graduate schools and decided to, that was at the point that Willoughby came to Peabody. I was like, okay, I'm in, I'm doing that there. And, um, got in to do that and did, uh, actually, uh, added to my undergraduate degree. I, at the same time I was doing my master's there, I did a degree in audio engineering there and, um, which is now it's it's great in the general sense, but all of the technology has changed so right. much it's not really uh, I'd relevant, have to really yeah. yeah yeah a lot of it has really changed. We had uh, some of the Sony donated the uh, to the program because it was kind of the first program. The idea for that program is just a quick aside was that the people who recorded and uh, engineered and produced classical music. Um, those people were kind of dying out and there, there wasn't a lot of, there weren't a lot of people coming up who understood classical music. There were a lot of people who understood recording for rock and roll or Right, but whatever. it's a different thing for sure. Right, very different thing to record an orchestra or piano, even for classical music. And so they started that program and Sony donated two, um, two inch digital tape recorders at that point uh, you know kind of that and that was the new thing that you could record digitally and now you know all of our iPhones do a better job than right. those big old <laughs> right. big old uh tape recorders did but so I did that and then got done with um that and continued on they had 
I was going to do a doctorate. And then since I wanted to go into performing, uh, they had uh, something called an artist diploma that was sort of pitched as the performance doctorate, which really, in hindsight, it wasn't so much because although I have that degree, when you put that out there, you know, for instance, if I wanted to look into college teaching, they don't really recognize that as that kind of thing. But so I did that. And um, while I was doing that, just freelanced like crazy um, and started to try and take uh, the professional audition track. Right. And um, I'd say probably two years or so into that, um, I started um, doing okay in the auditions. Actually, the very first thing I won was a piccolo job in Little Rock, Arkansas, which I uh, I don't know why I thought I, that would be a good idea to do because um, once I had won the job, I decided why would I move to Little Rock for I think it was $7,000 a year and give up the freelancing right. and work that I had. Yeah, and interesting. The, yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, one of the things I try and counsel young players about is, yeah, it's great to take auditions quote unquote, for the experience, but I really wouldn't try and take any that you would have to upend your life to go. And if you're not, sure. if you're not going to choose to if actually the do that reward thing is not worth it. Yeah. Correct. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Interesting. And then, uh, uh, the first job that I won that I took was the principal flute in the Knoxville symphony. And it was, uh, a one-year position, but, um, that was great. And I moved, that was that I'd moved up in the world by that point. That was $11,000 a year, I think, <laughs> and no benefits. And, uh, but it was, you know, for me, it was a dream. I got to be, I got to do what I wanted to do. Yeah. So, um, I moved to Knoxville and, um, in, I guess it was in October. Yeah, it must've been October. I, uh, yes, it was because it was for, Anybody who's an Alabama football fan, I took the audition for the Alabama Symphony job in October, and it was the same weekend as the Tennessee-Alabama game, which at that point, that particular weekend was being played at Legion Field. They no longer, of course, do that here, but... Um, and so, and I was playing in the Knoxville Symphony. So it was a crazy audition weekend. We were doing both the Cinderella Prokofiev Cinderella Ballet uh, and the Mozart Magic Flute that weekend, rehearsals and or performances of those. So I think I had a ballet performance on Friday night. I drove down after the performance, stayed at the worst motel I think I've ever <laughs> stayed at in my entire life in Bessemer, Alabama. Uh, the None of the lights in the room worked. So I had brought in my flashlight with me (laughs) (laughs) because it was two in the morning. And because it was this big football game, there were no rooms available pretty much in the entire town. Oh, wow. Okay. And uh, (laughs) so, and of course, brought in the flashlight and got to watch roaches run across the floor. And uh, now I just look back and go, I should have just gone and slept in my car at the Civic Center. But, you know, you you do what you do. Went in. uh, I was in the first hour of uh, auditionees playing. Um, and they advanced me to the finals and they said finals are tomorrow morning, which would have been Sunday at this point. So I drove back up to Knoxville, played, I think it was a rehearsal for the magic flute and then, uh, drove back down after that 
And uh, that night I had a better motel. I was going to ask you probably didn't yeah. stay in the same yeah, place. No, I because assume. it was yeah, because it was Saturday, and so the the game had happened already. Yeah. So I had a, a better motel to stay in. But it was funny while I was driving, I had my uh, car. I got a rental car because at that point I was driving this old beat up VW Bug that I didn't think it would make the make the trip very easily, and uh, had Tennessee plates on it. And as I'm driving down, all of these people in Alabama are honking their horn at me and flipping me off and oh, stuff right, because right. you know. Tennessee fan, theoretically. So anyway, I got down and uh, we're so lovely. Uh, well, at that point, I you know I didn't and I didn't know anything about really football in the South and what a thing it yes, is. Yeah. It was just like you know, yeah, they're playing a football game, okay, but right, um, yeah, it's different, yeah. right? And at that point, I think I mean always the rivalry between Tennessee and. Alabama is probably just second only to the rivalry between maybe Auburn. Auburn. Yeah. Right. Anyway. Sure. So, but uh, yeah, played the played the final audition and was fortunate enough to win the job. And at that point, it was uh, the associate principal and second job. And that moved me up to, I think at that point, we, we were making like 23, 24,000. So it's like double your previous. I doubled, yeah. yeah, I doubled my salary. Um I got health insurance. I got instrument insurance. They had, you know, a pension. It was just, you know, it was like winning the lottery yeah, for wow. me. And um, I, I loved it. It was it was great. Uh, they let me out of the Knoxville contract. They had a backup person who'd been the runner up to me. And I moved down here Thanksgiving weekend and started my, um, you know, career in the Alabama Symphony. We did the very first concert I think I played was... Uh, Don Quixote. Yeah. And I remember Warren Samples, who's still our principal cellist, just, you know, sounding great and the yeah. orchestra sounding great. And and Knoxville was a good symphony, too. I really think that um, one of the things that people don't realize is that the level of musicianship just across this country is so high and the jobs are so few that um, it's pretty hard to not find an orchestra that doesn't sound pretty good, right? Even right. at even in the smaller towns, and then I think uh, you know the level just um, is pretty pretty unanimously across the board good, almost no matter where you right. go, and better agree. some yeah. places. Um, yeah, being here really taught me that. I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't know about this orchestra mm-hmm. before I auditioned right. for it, and uh, Jared actually uh, right. was telling me he said he had played. I think it was Franck D minor three oh, or four wow. or five okay. years ago or yep. something like that. Yep. And he was telling me, he's like, you know what? Birmingham's actually a pretty cool town. And right. the orchestra sounds really, really nice. Right. And then yep. I get down here and I win the job and I start playing and I'm like, wow, you know? And it just really <laughs> opened my eyes that right. when you're in school, you're only thinking of the top, you know, five right. to eight orchestras and how that's right. the only acceptable thing possible. But right. yeah, you realize, you know, the level, like you said, is is pretty high, no matter where you're going to go. Right. And so maybe, you know, you're touring more with a group like Chicago and playing big mm-hmm. repertoire all the right. time and stuff. You know, that's a, a big difference is we may not play big repertoire. Right. But the level of musicianship is still pretty wonderful here. And it's not artistically right. dissatisfying to play nope. with my colleagues here. And that's nope. that's something, you know, a little bit of perspective that would have been a little nice. But right. You know, right. it is what it is when you're younger, I suppose. Right. I mean, I know I'm right. still pretty young, but that perspective that I've gained is re- I really right. appreciate it for sure. Well, and I think a lot of times, um, you know, I think certainly as a young person, I was so I like I said, it was winning the lottery to have a, a job as a flute player is just a big deal, period. But um, I think 
a lot of times people will look at coming somewhere like uh, like here and go, well, this will be great for a few years and yeah. then I'll, you know, win the bigger job somewhere else. And and I, I continued to audition and you know, sometimes made the finals and more often than not did not. And um, but the longer that uh, and certainly uh, after I came back here after the orchestra had gone down and uh, kind of reformed. I think the longer that you live someplace, and particularly the colleagues that I play with here, um, are just amazing. And it's not always, I mean, you can play in a great orchestra and have colleagues that you don't um, particularly get along with. I mean, there's stories rife with that, you know, going back to the Chicago Symphony and, you know, Don Peck and Ray Steele. And I can't even imagine what that would be like to sit next to someone for that many years and not get along with them. Right. I mean, Jim and I have sat next to each other for what, 20 some, 21, 22 years now. And, um, you know, we get along great. And it's um, part of what I love about being here. And the longer I think that you kind of settle into a a situation like that, the more you, at least I do, appreciate Absolutely, it. Absolutely. And yeah. it doesn't mean, you know, I'll still take the occasional audition, but um, it has to be something that really uh really speaks to me in terms of either the area of the country I want to live in or the organization itself um because there just aren't that many places that I would move to and gamble with you know finding a situation like I have here I absolutely love every single player that I play with and particularly my colleagues in the 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 wind section you know going back to what we talked about before about having peers that you challenge you Every time they play, they challenge me. I listen to them and go, man, I got to up my game in a major way because they sound so fantastic. And um, it's just it's just a pleasure, really, no matter what we're playing, whether we're playing uh, Beethoven Symphony or like this afternoon, the video games. Right. It's, yeah. It doesn't really matter. They're they're going to come with their A game every single time. And I try to as well, but they, they challenge me to, to make sure that I continue to really play at a, the highest level that I can and to improve, to continue and to improve. Sure. Yeah. I, I talk about this with, um, you know, people I come across with, maybe it's through master classes or just friends and mm-hmm. things like that. And certainly when I was younger, the goal was to be some person in a huge orchestra, right? A bigger right. organization like New York or Chicago. Right. And that's the thing that motivated me more than anything. But being in a situation like this uh, in Alabama, where I'm in a very, very wonderful orchestra with, like you said, great colleagues and uh, a good quality of life, you start to weigh that right. with the decision to decide to or you know audition for another orchestra and it's not just a lateral move or a, or a move up in terms of right. I'm going to go get paid more money right. you're starting to think well I'll get paid more money but how far is that money going to take me and I'm going to give up this you know like this house that we're in right now right. how much would this cost in a place like Chicago and what I have right. a preserve a nature preserve right. in the backyard you know there's right. so many of these perks that come from being in a city like Birmingham that yeah, that starts to weigh into the decision, and it's not right. such an easy call after no, a while. But like not. you said, especially the longer you're in a place and you right. kind of get ties to people and to the place itself. Right. It's funny because anytime, like, uh, oh, a few years ago, like the, the New York Met opened up and uh, the opera orchestra, and I love playing opera music. But, um, and of course, you know, that would be such a long shot to even, you know, begin to win the job. But I really thought if I, by some <clears throat> combination of huge amounts of luck and so forth, won the job, 
it'd be a wonderful job in terms of playing, but in terms of my life right now, I love dog training. I love being able to go out in nature. It's a lot harder if you're playing in yeah. the Met Orchestra to to do that. And yeah, sure, the music and the and the uh, the salary would be great, but you kind of have to deal with New York City, yeah. which I love visiting, but. I just I could not imagine actually living there with where I am in my life right now. Yeah. Maybe 20 years ago or 30 years ago, it might have taken a different course. But um, with what I like to do with my free time and with um, my life, I'm not really interested in that. So yeah, and I know people would pri- look at that going, really? <laughs> yeah, just so, weighing your priorities, you yeah, know. Yeah. And they now, change, give obviously. me the job and I might go, well, let me think about that yeah. for a second <laughs> so but in terms of making the effort to go take the audition and do that i just kind of made a choice no i don't i don't think so for this one so so you have the job in alabama and how long were you here before the before the job disappeared about three years and boy that was one of the hardest um hardest tar- times of i think all of our lives um i i had never, of course, gone through that. Um, in Baltimore, I, as a student, watched uh, Tim, Tim Day, my teacher, and the Baltimore Symphony go through some work stoppages and some kind of tough times that way. But when you're a student and a kid, it doesn't really right. register other than you want to be supportive of your teacher and of the symphony. But in terms of um, having your livelihood taken away from you, yeah. not so not so much. So before, before we get too much mm-hmm. into it, I just want to make sure everybody out there listening knows that uh, it was in 1992, 90, 92 into 93, I the think. The orchestra just went bankrupt, right? And the job, yep. how, what, can you just explain the situation right. as it was? It was, yeah. um, I mean, going, I mean, certainly as with many orchestras, um, it was pretty clear that there were financial difficulties. Again, as a young player, I don't think I really understood endowments and spending down the endowment and how the um how budgets worked how annual budgets worked um i'm not sure i still understand it but <laughs> i have a little bit uh, deeper understanding of it but as best i can encapsulate and i think uh you know people who were more uh more steeped in it at that time might have the facts straight so i might be wrong on some of this but um our budget at that time was fairly heavily dependent on some uh government funding mostly from the state of alabama and um that funding uh kept decreasing so i think it went from i'm gonna make up numbers here because i'm not even really sure but i think it went from almost a million dollars a year that had been figured into our general budget to 400,000 to nothing. And that happened over a very quick period of time. And uh, the other problem with that is that the orchestra had uh, engaged in deficits that ran, that continued to run from season to season and kept growing. So we not only had a problem with funding for a current year being taken away, but also deficits that kept running from... Right, so kind of and, a two-pronged problem. Right, you know. and and as I said, I may be wrong about some of this because really I, it's sort of foggy to me about what all happened. I just remember thinking, what am I going to do? So uh, we went through the entire fall with it kind of going, are we going to be okay? Is this next paycheck coming? Is it not coming? What's happening? Um 
uh, the poor committee at that time. I remember running around. It was just this. This is how old I am. It was when cell phones were st- first starting to happen, and they were literally like the size of a briefcase right. that you carried around. Yeah. And uh, I remember our committee chairperson having that around because he was constantly having to be on the phone with management or board members or so forth. But anyway, uh, we it, we got into the first part of the January of that season, and uh, we were playing children's concerts. And um, I remember it just being much more, it was clear that it was much more dire. We were supposed to do a Pops concert with uh, Emmy Lou Harris, actually, which um, now I'm really sorry about because I love her. Mm-hmm. But, um, <clears throat> and that week, the uh, the kind of it had come to a head with where I think the board and management had come to the musicians and basically said, you have to take these really draconian cuts or we're going to declare bankruptcy. And um, they, we said, we just can't do that. And they declared bankruptcy and shut the organization down. And um, we since won eventually uh, an NLRB case where you can't threaten bankruptcy as a means of exacting uh, labor cuts. Yeah, it's so, take these huge cuts or get nothing. Right, that's, right. Yeah, that's pretty. And I think that that's probably a oversimplification, but well, that's yeah, kind of what I mean, happened at that point. And it's um, horrible. Yeah, it just it went down. All of us were just you know scrambling. I I was a little bit luckier in that at least I was a single person who was just renting. I didn't have a mortgage that had to right. be covered or kids that needed to be fed or. Um, but even with that, all of us just scrambled like crazy to um, to find work, to cover things. Um, it was pretty immediately clear that it wasn't going to come back anytime real quick. And uh, Did you have hope that it would come back, that it wasn't quick, or were there thoughts that it might not come back at I all? I think initially, just like any of the, what they call it, the stages of grief, I think we all sort of went through that for the organization. <laughs> uh, you know, what's the first one? Anger. I think we were all just furious that I this was denial, happening. I think it's denial, yeah. Deni- well, yeah, right. denial that this is happening, yeah. Right. But uh, that was pretty fast because, you know, the paycheck's It's happening. Quick. <laughs> it's <laughs> so, happening. <laughs> right. And, um uh, so anyway, I just started uh, trying to freelance again every place that I could. Um, I taught, which kind of helped get me through to some extent. And uh, I, um, at that point, had a boyfriend who was up in Connecticut. And so I just made arrangements to move back up to Connecticut to uh, to kind of freelance up there and started taking auditions like crazy. And in August of that year, I... Uh, went down to Savannah, Georgia, and took the audition that they had for Principal Flute there and won it and um, was really lucky, very, very lucky. I always say that, you know, to my students, you have to be super prepared. You have to work super hard. And then in any audition or in life in general, there's just an element of luck that you just have to thank the cosmos or your belief system or whatever about because – it's it's it will always that will always be an element there. Um, it just it's just how it is. Um, I remember one of the things that the audition committee there had us had us do the last two of us who were down for the job. They had us play through the for flute geeks out there. Um, the last movement of Prokofiev's classical symphony beginning to end, which is just 
it's a technical nightmare of thousands of high Ds and lots and lots of fingerings and no sections, just start somewhere around start, the beginning. Yeah, right. Go and to I the think end. I think it's like a minute and a half, if depending on whether you take the repeat or not, wow. or at most. Uh, and it's just you know very fast. And and um, it was actually something that I'd sort of incorporated into my practice, and um, just as it wasn't an excerpt necessarily that entire that entire movement of the symphony, but it was something that I just sort of played to to work on and um I played it and uh, I guess played it and well enough to to win the job and moved to Savannah played there for about 3 4 seasons I'm trying to remember and um and then at that point I remember uh Dave Pandolfi the principal horn here and uh, a very strong leader in the orchestra calling me up and going, you know, we're getting the band back together, basically. And um, the woman who had been principal flute at that point uh, and her husband, who is the principal oboe, had decided not to return and said, uh, we're trying to give all of the people who are in the orchestra as much of a chance as possible to return if they want to return. Um, uh, Because you were an assistant associate principal, what we would do is put you in the principal's position and then you would have to win tenure in that position. So it was a little bit of a gamble because I was already playing principal flute and I loved living in Savannah. I had a great section of colleagues there too. I've really been blessed that way. Um, But I decided that um, I I thought it was, sadly at that point, Savannah had been on some hard times too. We'd gone through a work stoppage, a strike of about four months the previous year and just sort of the way the wind was blowing there, I didn't, I saw hints of what I'd seen before. And uh, a lot of what I'd seen in terms of what they were doing with reforming the orchestra in Alabama, I was really excited about. We had a new hall to play in that was really great. Uh, Before, we played in just the Civic Center Concert Hall in the the Birmingham Civic Center, which was not a great hall to play in. Uh, And that's kind of where we played in Savannah as well. It was not a great hall. Um, Just a lot of things that seemed really exciting about what was going on in Alabama. They'd restructured the organization so that it could not run a, uh, we had to have a, we couldn't run deficits year to year. Um, It looked like they had a lot of support, a lot. It just looked like a a great move to make. So I thought, well, I'll I'll gamble and basically uh, went through um, a year of kind of a a year-long audition, really, of um playing principal flute there and won tenure and I've kind of been here ever since and felt really really fortunate to to do that um just great colleagues to play with and a beautiful hall to play in and um and it was great to come back to a community that had recognized too what a significant loss it was to lose to lose this orchestra sure, to lose yeah. you know as I think you had mentioned uh, Jim had mentioned kind of the orchestra being a living art form to lose that in your community and um, I think it it really it became something that they valued a whole lot more as with many things once you lose it you realize right, yeah you, you don't realize know what, you have what yeah, it's gone, yeah. Ex- exactly so um, and I always liked living in Birmingham uh, I always enjoyed living here. Um, and so I was, I was glad to come back. And as it turned out, I think it was two years after I was back, um, the Savannah Symphony sadly folded and has not really come back. They have a kind of a small orchestra that gets together and does a little bit, but in terms of being a 
full-time orchestra. It's not, it's not come back. So I'm very sorry for the, the people who were there that way. And, um, selfishly glad for me that I took the risk and, and came back. So, so you've touched on it a little bit, but Mm -hmm. I'd be curious if you wanted to put it into like a concise ish Mm -hmm. statement, just what that experience has done for your mindset, what kinds of things you feel are important. You know, when, when you have a job, you think everything's just going to roll completely fine, right? You're just going (laughs) to keep getting raises. Everything's going to be awesome. Or you're going to win another job and there's going to be no bumps in the road. So how has that changed your priorities or how has that changed, you know, maybe even how you approach the job, anything like that? How does how does that change? Do you I think I think one of the things that it certainly um, brought into perspective for me is that it's lovely to think as a young player or as a student that really you can be sort of this artist that's above it all. You just work on your art, you work on your music, and you don't need to really be aware of the other things that go into um, into any organization. But I think an arts organization uh, in particular, um, there's a lot of work that goes on, I think, Obviously, if you're in the administrative side of things, that's your job and you do that. But I think that even as a musician, there's a lot of things that we can do to help keep us um, relevant in the community, to help advance the organization. I try um, whenever any of the office staff or anything asks me to do anything, whether it's to go speak somewhere or to meet with a patron or um, even in terms of just silly things like social media, I share like crazy on social media about what a great group we are. And here's a video of us playing. Come see our concert. This is an amazing thing. Um, you I do don't one of those think... lifestyle videos too, right? Which is yes, kind of yeah. a condensed version yeah. of this. But <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah so right. I think it's. To... I just think it's absolutely important that we. Uh, I don't think we just get to sit. Maybe 30, 40 years ago, you could sit in your practice room and go to rehearsals and go to the concerts. And uh, that's all that was really required of you. I just don't think that uh, in our present climate, that's enough anymore. And if you feel like you can, I certainly don't hold anything against any of uh, my colleagues who don't feel like they can or want to do any of sort of what I would call the peripheral activities. That's that's fine. But I feel like if you if you feel like you can, that it's important. Uh, it's important to do. Um, I just think it's, it's helpful in many ways to, to kind of remove a little bit of the ivory tower stigma that maybe classical music has, that you're just in this little, you know, corner of the universe in your own thing and that you're not a real person who has a family, trains dogs, runs marathons that you see in Whole Foods or right. Publix or yeah. Walmart or wherever that um, we we just have to be, I think, a little bit more proactive. And I see that a lot. It amazes me in a lot of the young players who come up. They don't just think, well, I'm going to practice and get a job. They're pretty active in making careers for themselves across a wide platform of things, whether it's YouTube videos or Skyping lessons teaching. And um, I'm a little bit of a dinosaur in that I'm, I'm sort of new to some of these things. I taught my first, actually, we ended up having Skype wasn't working. So we did a, uh, what's the Facebook Face, one? FaceTime. FaceTime. Yeah, we did a FaceTime lesson. But, um, it, you know, so I think a lot of what we do 
yes, we have to do all of the things we used to do as players and musicians, but I think the more that we can do in terms of being just, I would call it present in our communities, whether it's having lunch with patrons or um, I'm not, I wish I was more of a night person. We have these great things, the junior patrons and the socials and stuff afterwards. And I always have great intentions about going. And then I play the concert and I'm so wiped out. I just want to go home (laughs) and, you know, change into my jammies and uh, stick the dogs in me and watch some uh, Netflix or uh, go to bed. So, but I think uh, a lot of those things um, are really important for us to do. And I think some of what perhaps the public doesn't realize, too, is just how much we do outside of the orchestra, not only in terms of our own preparation for playing in the orchestra, but in terms of playing in churches in the communities, playing in, um, you know, weddings, receptions. uh, The amount of teaching that we're doing. Right. I teach at UAB. I teach privately. I think I've taught at Every university in the area at some point, Montevallo and Samford, Birmingham Southern, I did a, a, a semester teaching at University of Alabama for the teacher there while she had her baby. Um, it's 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 a coaching in the high schools. Sure. Yeah, all, of right. the, all of that stuff is 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 a lot of what we do as well as um, as well as play in the orchestra. And I just think it's it's an important part of what we do. And I think. When the orchestra went down here, I think people realized how much, not only was it there weren't orchestra concerts to go to, there wasn't that resource to call upon because while some people were able to stay and cobble together lives here, a great amount of people left or they went to pursue other careers because um, it just, you had to, you have to find a way to pay the mortgage and feed the kids. Yeah, Marilyn Pipkin, Mm -hmm. she's the former concert mistress, I suppose you would say, for a female. She told me at a a gig I played with her that her uh, her violin was financed through the bank. Right. And so when her paychecks disappeared, she couldn't pay the bank, Bank. and they took her instrument from her. Right. So she could just no longer play music at all, right? Right, right. I mean, it's not like she could go play gigs. She literally doesn't have an instrument instrument to to play. play Yeah, she was our principal's second violin i think oh sorry i thought yeah. she was the no that was our, our prince our concert not marilyn pipkin i'm thinking of marilyn because her name griffin. is griffin marilyn griffin right yeah okay so yeah, i got yeah. there i got their last right 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 no that's up. that's very true yeah, yeah very true yeah it's exactly it's exactly the case and yeah it's just yeah it was it was tough a lot of people really it was a lot of suffering um i felt really badly for like i said my colleagues who are a little bit older than me and who had families and so forth, because at that point, you're not just trying to make sure that I was pretty sure I was going to be okay. Um, I knew that at worst case scenario, I could do what I'd done before. I could work as a, a secretary or a temp or right. something like that while I tried to get another job. But um, it's a lot harder when you're looking at, you know, kids in school and, you know, they don't, they don't understand um, why, why they can't do things. And they, yeah, yeah. And they, and it's interesting too, for me to have this uh, hobby, I suppose, mm-hmm. with podcasting. Cause right. I feel I've just learned a lot of skills right. that are very applicable across the board right. that I may not have learned just saying, I'm going to sit in my practice room right. and, and practice my instrument, which right. is a very vital part. That's the most important right. part of what right. I can offer 
the organization. Um, but like you said, finding ways to say, what other skills do I have? Really, that's what it boils down right. to. You don't have to do something that you're uncomfortable with, but everybody has skills that can extend outside of their instrument. Right. Saying, what are those skills? And then how can they be used in a way that I will feel like I'm comfortable right. with what I'm doing? Right. And like you said, everybody's got different skills. People, Some people feel great speaking in front of an audience. Some people feel horrible speaking right. in front of an audience. <laughs> But, you know, some people can do other things mm-hmm. and some people, like you said, some people can do maybe just playing in front of, uh, you know, the board or something like that. Right. They have those things that I've done. One of those. Right. I know you've done yep. those or sure yep. uh, whatever you feel comfortable doing. But I, I actually completely agree. It's so wonderful because I did not know that you felt that strongly. Uh, about I do. This. I just yeah. think it's I think. And a lot of times, too, I don't think that people realize even from a player's perspective, there are a lot of um, there's an orchestra committee that deals with kind of our day to day work. There's and that's artists. a hugely time consuming. Oh, it's hugely yeah. time consuming and it's hugely stressful. And I try and remember to thank every single one of them every single time that I think about it for doing that, because um, they deal with the nuts and bolts of what we do and making sure that it runs smoothly according to our contracts and as a liaison to the administration and to the artistic staff to our music director and it's it's a it's a terribly difficult and time-consuming job and um as usual i think that it doesn't get thanked very much and people are always coming to you with problems people right. rarely come to you and go wow this is awesome everything is running so smoothly right, it's, it's right. always why is this not happening and and all of that and uh artistic advisory committees um search committees audition committees. There's a lot of stuff that kind of, uh, I think, people who aren't steeped in the general culture of playing in a professional orchestra don't realize happen just to kind of keep the keep the um keep the wheels on the cart and keep it moving down the road so um and just in terms of what you can do as an individual yeah speaking like you said you've played for the board i went and played for before a board meeting um we have little groups that have gone and played for various things um like education concerts education we had some in concerts. the children's hospital recently right exactly the, i think they're trying to set up some for the the veterans association wonderful yeah, yeah. we did one that was uh christmas time <clears throat> uh the little group of strings and flute we went and played in the lobby of the kirkland clinic just played we just played christmas carols yeah. and uh, you know people loved it and it was a way we had a placard up that said you know musicians from the alabama symphony orchestra it just um i think it's important that we're that we're out there i try anytime i'm out in the world and uh people ask me what i do i explain what it is and tr- and they're always to a person no one says really that's what you do it, uh, to a person they're wow that is so cool right, how did you yeah. end up doing that what's it like um all of those things i um train dogs as a hobby and it takes me into kind of places and I would say circles of people that I might never run into otherwise. And I kind of view that as a chance too when they ask me about it to explain really what I do because most of the time they have no idea. You know, when you say that you're an airplane pilot, people know what that is or you teach school they know what that is but um when you say you play in an orchestra they don't know really what that is most of the time Mm -hmm. um and a lot of times the assumption is is that that's just kind of a part-time thing that it's a hobby that um that it's not really the amount of work it is and i always preface it by saying i love what i do but yes it's my job it's a job it's a a job job. and i say they're just like any jobs 
any any job, there are days that I like it more than than others. Right. And I said, you know, I'd say ninety five percent of the time I love it, but there's a five percent of the time where I I'm not really into whatever music it is we're playing at that point. You're still or, giving the best interpretation right, you can, but you don't right, have to like everything, right? Yeah. And I won't name any names, but a lot of times it's <laughs> you know it's just it's a piece I don't particularly like, even among classical repertoire. I think all of us have pieces that we just go, oh, really? Okay. Um, but, but the audience you, deserves our best. They, absolutely. Yeah. And I do my level best to play it as well as I can. And sometimes I almost view it as a challenge to go, okay, how can I play this in a way that I will come to like it more? And really that has very little to do with uh, most classical, quote unquote, classical music. I don't feel that way about. But sometimes in the course of what we play, we play some pops music or or something where I just think, really, this is not what I spent hours in a practice room to do. Right. But um, how can I challenge myself to uh, to both enjoy it more? And the number one thing is that no one should ever know that anything I play isn't something that I absolutely love sure. because it's something that somebody loves. Sure, absolutely. Even if it's not something that I feel a great connection to musically, it's something that somebody does and they deserve to hear it in the best possible way. Absolutely. That's so that's so invigorating. I'm so happy we could turn that sort of dark conversation into, you know, a positive almost call call to action, at least for what we what mm-hmm. we believe. I completely agree. And like you yep. said, you would never put it on anybody else, but I believe it, you believe it, and mm-hmm. that kind of drives a lot of the actions we have. So right. you mentioned dog training. I think mm-hmm. this is as good a time to turn the conversation that way. How uh, much more time do we have? Because it will I can talk about this for hours. <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, I think with dog training, how it happened is uh, I grew up with dogs. I grew up with, as I think I mentioned before, St. Bernard's in Alaska, which was a, a great climate for them. I always loved them. I think um, Sammy, Samantha, my St. Bernard, she used to lay on my feet while I practiced and would uh, cringe and whine when I got to the really high notes. But other than that, was good with it all. Um, and as an adult, uh, until I... Actually, until I moved to Savannah, I didn't have a dog because I thought it was just too hard to do with traveling, especially in the previous incarnation of the Alabama Symphony. We were on the road a lot. Almost every week we were on the road playing somewhere in Alabama. And uh, I just thought it was too hard to have uh, a dog. So I never did. When I moved to Savannah, um, I just thought, you know, at this point, it's something I want to try and make happen because it's something that I have always loved. I've always loved animals in general and dogs in particular. And so uh, it was actually a bass player in the Alabama Symphony here who had been a friend of mine. And she had a Labrador called Daisy that I loved, yellow Labrador. And she called me up and she said, hey, I'm going to breed Daisy. Um, do you want a puppy? And I just decided, okay, I'm going to just make the jump and get a puppy. So uh, I drove from Savannah. I had, it's kind of a funny story. I had a chair here that I had been just kind of storing that I hadn't moved that uh, Patty Pylon, a cellist in the orchestra, had had. And I thought, well, I'm just going to get this rental van. I'm going to pick up my chair and I'm going to pick up my puppy and we're going to go 
back to Savannah. So that's what I did. And I picked her up. Her name, uh, I named her Molly after Molly on the shore because she was crying in the uh, van while we were going home. And there's a Percy Granger. It's actually a band piece, I think, a little Mm -hmm. reel called Molly on the shore. And I'd had a student who was working on it. And so I was sort of whistling it. And I'd been talking to her and trying to calm her down. She was just, you know, crying. And uh, I started sort of whistling Molly on the shore and she shut up. And I hadn't been really sure about a name. And I thought, okay, that's it. Wow. Yeah, for a Labrador. That's such a cool way to name an animal. Yeah, for a Labrador, that's pretty good, too. So uh, Molly, uh, she was my first dog, and I took her back to Savannah. And uh, as a responsible little dog owner, uh, enrolled in a, a puppy puppy class with a, a woman I st- who's still a friend, uh, Carol Met, and started into puppy class. And she... Um, like many Labradors, they're bred to to work with people. They're um, retrievers, so they're bred initially in their genetic makeup. They're bred to be um, hunting dogs. And um, she was uh, pretty good at the basic obedience. And Carol said, you know, she might be really a good competition obedience dog. Why don't you come out to a match that we're having this weekend and see what that is? So I went to this match and watched what the dogs were doing and, with their owners. And that was that was it. That was the beginning of the end for me because it was just so cool. They did a I watched one thing. It's called a drop on recall where you put the dog across the ring from you in a sit stay and you call them to you. And in the middle of calling them to you, you put your hand in the air and the dog flattens and downs. And um, I just thought, how do you get them to do that? Yeah. You know, and I still sometimes think, how do I get them to do that? But <laughs> but anyway, so I started in on that. There's three levels of obedience, novice, open and utility with different skills in each level and sort of worked my way through that with her and started meeting people uh, who did that as well and just really, really enjoyed it. And it's uh, I always joke that I managed to pick a hobby that's very similar to music in that you spend hours and hours and hours of practice and for about five minutes in a ring, which is a little bit like an audition. Absolutely. When you take auditions, Absolutely. you spend hours and hours and hours and hours of practicing, and then you have five minutes in a ring to show what you can do. Five minutes on a stage for an audition or, you know, that 30 seconds of your solo in a performance. Absolutely, yeah. So, um, but, it, it, you know, the difference, I think, uh, with, with the with her or with dog training is that it's it's really a, a team effort at the performance, which if you look at an orchestra, it's a team effort that involves what 80, 90, depending yeah. on the piece, other musicians that you're working with, or if you're playing like Jim and I do, or principal clarinet Kathleen or Tarek or anybody in the orchestra that you're playing together with, it's kind of the same same idea. So uh I did that with her and eventually got um my second dog, Tess, they're all named for various musical things. She was Troublesome Tessitura. The kennel name was the Troublesome Labradors, and Tessitura is a range of an instrument. And so she was Troublesome Tess, and uh, she was my uh, first and so far only dog to get an obedience championship, which is a, a pretty tough road to hoe. You have to beat other dogs and um, get points. It's, it's, it's a kind of a long, involved process. But I started doing obedience with her. And then at that point, the person who I was going and taking obedience lessons with said, uh, you want to go out and see if uh, Molly at that point likes um, likes retrieving. And she was training retrievers for uh, hunt tests and field trials. And 
my six-year-old Labrador loved it. And so then I kind of transitioned into doing uh, hunt tests and field trials, which are the um, <clears throat> the dog sports that uh, test the dog's ability in hunt tests more in a hunting situation. Field trials has become sort of a just a class into its own. It's it's stuff that you wouldn't ever ask a dog really to do in a hunting situation. It's it's kind of the next level. It's the Olympic level up from that. And uh, that's, I, I still do obedience. In fact, I took my latest dog, um, Phi, down to a classic, it's called in Orlando. And we competed down there in the novice division. And out of 72 dogs, she was the 11th best. So sadly, you only got ribbons up to 10. But oh. I'm still, I know I was like, also ran. <laughs> so but close. So close. And actually, the reason that she didn't end up higher in the placement was my fault. I stepped on her tail going around her once and she stood up a little bit and that cost us two points and that cost us moving up in the placement. So it wasn't even her fault. It was my fault. But um, yeah, and it's just, uh, like I said, I've met a whole nother group of people. Um, the I've had four Labradors, Molly, Tess, and then uh, Leah, who also did very well in obedience. She's a master hunter and a called a utility dog excellent it's a tough it's the next the title right below a champion and uh she leah and fi are named actually ryan you would appreciate this for uh the leonora number three overture which has big trumpet Ah, and big flute stuff in it and uh so uh it's one of the largest flute excerpts um it's you rarely will go to an audition and not have to play yeah, Leonora. i imagine very yeah, same, same for us yeah. yeah it's often the one of the first ones right exactly yep can so, you play a b-flat arpeggio in tune, tune. <laughs> no well i don't think we need to hear anything else <laughs> exactly yeah and for us it's the it's the you know a lot of times they'll have us do the opening which is uh yeah arpeggios as well that you're trading with the strings um and then the the fast solo which follows the big sure. call that you have but um yeah so she's uh Leah was named for Leonora which is the heroine of the opera and then Phi is named for Fidelio which is the um the male I don't know what you would call it character that uh that Leonora takes in order to rescue Florestan her sure. her beloved right. and uh I wish that the opera was done more I think it's a great opera it's just not done very often I don't know what it, I know the overtures obviously and then yeah, the Fidelio yeah, overture but I don't know It's great it's great stuff it's yeah. Beethoven's only opera and it's just so rarely done and I'm not really sure why that's the case um it's um it's kind of one of the I call it one of the few dramatic operas in which you know nobody dies at the end and it has a happy ending yeah, and that she which is pretty you know, rare I guess yeah I, yeah she frees uh Leonora frees uh Floristan from the dungeon that he's being held in and so forth but uh yeah so Leonora and then my latest uh young dog is named Phi Fidelio is her her full full name so um yeah it's it's fun it's a way to um both you meet a lot of people that you would never i would never run across otherwise and i think for me uh, you know growing up in alaska i grew up in the outdoors a lot dad being a fisheries biologist was always kind of dragging the family along while he went and tested rivers and streams places we camped Almost every weekend in the summer, in the winter, uh, we cross-country skied. We were just always outdoors. And I think if there's one thing that I uh, miss about the career that I've chosen is that 
it involves a lot of being indoors yeah. and a lot of sitting around or standing around and practicing. And uh, I miss the, you know, kind of being out in nature. And so when you're out training dogs for retrieving, you're out in nature, you're usually out in big fields or ponds or so forth. And that's cool. I try uh, when I can at least one day a week to get over to Mississippi with a trainer work over there and um, we're just outdoors the whole day training dogs. It's just a nice um, switch from what I do sure. normally. And um, yeah, it's 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 a great hobby. And I think it's one that, um, like I said, it's it's eerily similar in kind of what you have to do in order to um, be successful at it. Even the numbers uh, for flute players, when I won my job here, I think I was one of a hundred flute players that auditioned that particular day. At least it was in the 90s. And uh, at field trials, um, you they do placements one through four, and often you know there's anywhere between fifty to eighty dogs, dogs and handler teams competing. So last spring, uh, Fi and I got a fourth in an amateur, and uh, you know I thought it was like winning the lottery because yeah. it's just so hard. It's really sure, hard. Sure. And like you with uh, trumpet, there's just lots and lots of really good players who play trumpet. There's lots and lots of really good players who play every instrument. But I think certain instruments, there's just a larger volume right. of players that are out there trying for the jobs, sure. trying for the for the positions and in this particular area of dog sports I've chosen, it's the same same thing. There's just lots of really good good teams and good dogs. So, so there may not be uh, a direct answer to this question, mm-hmm. but we were talking before we turned the mics on about you know kind of what powerlifting has taught me about yeah. music. I have a yeah. whole podcast about it, so I don't want right. to have to go into it right now. But do you feel like there's anything you, you you've touched on it a little bit just mm-hmm. in terms of the amount of hours involved? Mm-hmm. Are there any specifics that you've that you feel you've taken from, you know, tr- specifically training mm-hmm. a dog to do something? Is there right. any similarities you've found to oh, learning a ab- skill? Yeah, the, abso- yeah, absolutely. I think, um, well, in dog training, it's, and I, I probably carry more of it over into my teaching, but even in terms of myself, I think um, when you have a new skill to learn, and for me, it's less on the flute, a new skill to learn as it might be a new piece or something like that, um, I build very in in small increments uh to to learn um to learn it so you don't start out with a dog for instance um one of the things you do in obedience with uh with dogs and at the higher levels is called scent discrimination and they have to go out and find a dumbbell out of a pile of 10 or 12 that you've touched. So you touch one and they have to go find it. Well, you just don't immediately stick a pile of 12 out there with the one you've touched and go, go find the one that I've touched. It's a very orderly process along the way and um, of teaching them to uh, recognize that you're asking them to look for a scent, that you're asking them to differentiate between things that have a scent and that don't have a scent, Um, all all of that kind of thing. And certainly with playing, um, I think as a young player, I spent a lot of time um, what what I would call the volume versus the quality, or what would it be, quantity versus quality practicing. Yeah, I spent a lot of time, you know, practicing six or eight hours a day, just you know, practicing everything, and not in a very organized way. And it worked because I put in the time to do that. However, it was massively inefficient. Right. And, right. Um, what I found, of course, I remember being at Tanglewood and um, 
Fenwick Smith, who was the second flute player in the Boston Symphony and who was coaching a group I was in at that point, I was, you know, not complaining, but just saying where it was during the Contemporary Music Festival, which they would do two weeks of contemporary music. And we just have all of this music learning as a flute player, very noty and a lot of stuff. And I just said, I just can't, I can't get it done. I can't put in the time I need to practice this. And, and he said, well, what are you doing? Because you need to learn to be efficient. You're not going to have time in an orchestra. Um, You know, he said, if you're fortunate enough to get an orchestra job, the the folders and the music is going to come at you so fast, you're not going to have time to do it. So you need to do it the way that you've been doing it. You need to be a lot more efficient in how you practice it. And for me, that involves breaking it down a lot more. Um, and in dog training, it's the same thing. You break it down into those individual steps. And, uh, and I think it's not only breaking it down into the individual steps, but having faith that doing that is going to get you sure. to the place you need to be. Because I think I didn't have a lot of faith as a young player that without spending six or eight hours a day practicing, I was going to be able to do it. I yeah. felt like I needed that crutch or that security blanket of having put in that time. And to some degree, I think as a young player, it's not bad to put in uh, uh, more hours because I think there's a lot, as long as you're smart about it, to learn. As an older player, um, I've played a lot of the rep before. I don't need to learn Daphnis and Chloe from the ground up anymore. I need to relearn it as if, if we're doing it. Um, but I think it took a lot for me to understand that a lot of time for me to understand that if I was efficient and organized in how I was practicing, that it would get me there in the same, uh, in a better way, actually, than just spending huge volumes of time practicing. So I got more analytical about how I practiced. Um, I just didn't play through things endlessly beginning to end, or even just the, I, I think sometimes I thought, well, I'm not going to play the whole piece. I don't need to really do that, but I'm going to play this technical part of it over and over and over and over again. And, um, yeah, it got me there, but it also got me arm troubles that I had to deal with along the way. And it was really, as I said, just hugely inefficient. And when I got smarter about, thinking about, okay, well, how do you approach this technical passage? How can I make it, um, how can I really be um, intellectual almost about how I'm practicing it rather than just physical about how I'm practicing it? How can I group it? How, what different techniques could I use? And so with my younger players, whether they're planning on going into a career in music or not, one of the first things I think we talked about before we started hitting the record button is that I spend a couple of lessons with them actually practicing, teaching them how to practice, giving them um, a a kind of a template to follow with any particular piece that they're practicing about how to work on it. And, you know, briefly, if you're interested, I just tell, it's kind of a three-part thing. Mm -hmm. I have them. Yeah, absolutely. If it's a piece, a new piece, even brand new right off, you know, stick it in front of them. I tell it, play it beginning to end. Do not stop. I don't want you to stop because I think young players and particular ones who are good, they don't like playing past a mistake. They want to stop and fix it. And we all do. But um, a large part of being able to perform is being able to cope with a mistake and get past it. And being able to 
come back come and back. be good right. and like have it not derail right. you. Yeah. I remember I used to go up uh, for a while when I was freelancing and taking auditions. I really thought that I would try and become a piccolo player because I liked playing piccolo. I was fairly good at it. And so I would go up from Baltimore and drive up to Cherry Hill, New Jersey and take lessons with Kaz Tokido in the Philadelphia Orchestra, who was their piccolo player for many years. And I think really an undersung player, just phenomenal player and great teacher, too. But I remember playing something, an excerpt for him and messing it up and stopping and I said, because I was preparing for an audition and uh, and saying, well, that's it. That's, you know, the thank you that you get when you, you know, and and he said, no, not necessarily. He said, when we listen to auditions in the Philadelphia Orchestra, he said, we're less concerned about a mistake made than what you do after that mistake uh, yeah. is made. And I said, oh, come on, you have to be perfect to to get through. And he said, no, he said, if you're playing well and you make one little mistake it really is inconsequential to us, um, he said, because if that level of playing is something that we're interested in, we're going to go, ah, live music, mistakes happen. And he said, now, if you make that mistake and then it's a downhill spiral yeah. from there, that tells us that, you know, we're not going to be interested in you. Yeah. So he said, don't feel like a mistake made in an audition is going to automatically count you out. And I know from sitting on the other side of the screen, uh, listening to auditions now, it doesn't. If I like a player and they make one little bloop, I'm like, eh, you know, no big deal. And especially if they can recover from that and keep going. So with kids, going back to that with students, I say, play through it. Let's take the temperature. Let's see where you are. Let's see what needs to be worked on. But I don't want you to stop. I want you to treat it. It's a good practice sight reading if it's a new piece to them. And even if it's not, let's just see where you are with the piece cold then let's go back because you're going to remember where you need things to work on. And let's work on those. And that can comprise, of course, with flute, it being noty a lot of times. A lot of times it's a technical thing and ways of working on that with variations with different rhythms or transposing or just doing things differently, chunking it together differently to work on that. And then the last thing I have them do, and it's I find the hardest thing to get them to do, is I make them go back and play the piece and play it super slowly and super correctly so that that's the last thing that they leave off of for the day or for the practice session, because I find that that's, it does a couple of things. I'm a big believer in kind of neural pathways and motor muscle memory. And if the last thing you leave off is correct, it's much better that's than what's being that's digested. What's being, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then um, beyond that, I think it also just, it leaves you with a positive sense. I did that right. I did that well. Yeah. And you're much more likely to kind of want to come back to it and work on it rather than leaving it off at a frustrating place. And a lot of times if you're trying to play it through at tempo, even if it's fairly close to tempo, you're still going to be making maybe those mistakes and it's just not going to feel good. And um, like I developing think, a healthy relationship with the excerpt is basically, right. I think this is so huge that... There's everyone has those excerpts that they're like, oh, that's my nemesis. For right. me, it was the Ravel Piano Concerto, the opening right. and the ending right. of the first movement. Right. I just it was hard for me to play lightly, right. you know, with the right articulation, and so I just felt it was difficult. So anytime it came up, that's what I'm thinking right. of it. Right. Oh, this excerpt is hard right. for me. But once I started practicing it a little bit. 
mm-hmm. smarter, I started actually not only be able to play it better, but then develop a relationship right. of like, I can do this. I can do this. So right. then that confidence came through along with the preparation. Right. And it seemed like it was just holistically better, not right. just like I can play it better, but I feel, feel like okay I about it too, which right. is, I think, actually more important Absolutely. than your ability to play it. Yep. Yep. I did it with um, my my thing that way. Actually, it was funny when we were talking about, you know, Savannah and the classical symphony. There's a excerpt in that last movie of the classical symphony that's just it's very finger tricky. It's very hard. It's very fast. And I was just tired of not feeling like I could play it very well. And so one year I decided um, this was in kind of in August and I have my own kind of summer deal I do before each season. And we had it coming up. It was scheduled, I think, in February of that year. And I just decided for this excerpt, I started in August, and I never let myself play it fast. I played it every morning. When I got up, before I even did my warm-ups on the instrument, I would just walk into my studio where my flute was, get either get the flute out or if it was on my stand, just pick it up. And I'd play it you know, once through, super slowly, super accurately. And I didn't let myself even try and play it quickly until probably around end of December, And then I kind of started notching it up. And to this day, rarely do I have problems with that excerpt anymore because it's so ingrained correctly and I have the confidence that I can play it correctly. Now, do I get nervous about it still? Sure. Do I flub it occasionally? Absolutely. But it's it's not a reflection of not understanding it. Right. And it's also, it's just, it's not such an iceberg to me, defacing me. And, you know, I'm not feeling like, you know, it's going to be the excerpt that's going to take me down anymore. Um, And there are still ones, I think all of us have ones that um, are just difficult for us for whatever reason. And I just try... Um, I rotate them, but I try and incorporate some of them into my warm-ups or into my playing each day so that it just becomes uh, a part of, of what I play and, and who I am. And um, I think with young players, there's sometimes a move to to get it all down and to get it at tempo and to get it fast and to get it ready to go. And And yeah, you have to have it ready to go for auditions or performances and stuff like that. But I think it's more important to sort of let them gestate over longer periods of time when you can, and certainly with some of my students, that's what I've done is they've looked at excerpts or they've looked at things, um, you know, they'll start po- pointing to a metronome marking and th- and say, oh, but it's got to be 144, and you know, to the quarter note. And I'm like, yeah, not right now. It doesn't right. have to be. It can be 86 to the quarter note for a, two or three more months of that. Right. And I think uh, certainly I came up with that you started notching the metronome and you played it at a speed and then you notched it up and you played it at the, you know, you kept notching. And I believe in that, but I believe that for a longer period of time, if you can keep it at a slower speed and be super exact about what you do, that that's going to be much more helpful. Um, The other thing I think that I thought as a younger player um, was that you had to spend hours and hours every day practicing your folder for the week. And I think a lot of what I've sort of come to is I have about a 45 minute to an hour uh, regimen that I do each day that has to do with just long tones and scales and uh, really the stuff that none of the kids ever really want to practice. Right, but the but stuff that makes you better right. at your instrument, yeah. That's gonna And that's going to allow me to, you know, run into a rehearsal and uh, have a folder and practice, certainly practice that folder. I'm not saying I don't practice my folders. I really do. But it, I don't have to spend the hours reinventing the wheel because I already have that basis there 
to play. And um, I think that the more that you can kind of incorporate that from um, from a young young perspective, it's the the old thing about none of the kids want to hear, but scale, scale, scales. And I just say, you know, especially with an instrument like flute that's so technical, scales and arpeggios are your vocabulary. You're right. trying to write the great American novel not having a vocabulary. You can't you right. can't do it. You gotta have that vocabulary and it's gonna serve you better in the long run to have that and to not have to kind of every time something shows up in a piece go, oh, I, I have to learn that run. Well, if you recognize that that runs a B-flat major scale, that's going to help you a lot. Right, yeah. You don't have to think about it at that <laughs> right, point. Yeah. Right, exactly. So, um, And that's a lot of what my practice now is, is a lot of just maintenance. I'm fortunate in that now I've played many, many, many years. So a lot of times when, you know, Beethoven 5 hits the stand, like, oh, yep, know that one. Right, it's not right. so bad. Or uh, Schumann 3. Oh, yep, played that one before. Um, for us here, it's uh, it's fun for me that we get to do a few times at least some of the bigger pieces because just by nature of how our orchestra is structured, we I mean, the last time I think I did Rite of Spring was maybe 15 years ago, and we just did that last yeah. week or two weeks ago. Um, we'd never until last year done that. Da- I'd never played Daphnis and Chloe. I'd played second flute on it, but I'd oh, never wow. as a principal flute gotten to play principal on Daphnis and Chloe. So that was a huge thrill for me because the uh, the numbers are just so huge. It's I hard would have never had any idea that was your first time yep, playing it. No, never gotten to play it. So it was really really fun to do. Um, it's, it's tough. I think that that is one of the things about an orchestra, our size, um, that's a little bit, that is a little bit tough is that we don't do as much of the big repertoire as a Chicago or Boston or New York, because they have the, they have the players. We have uh two person woodwind sections, which makes it, makes it tough. It's a, you know, I joke that, uh, you know, I, I have my career of however many years, but let's double it up because I'm playing pretty much most of the time everything on every concert rather than just the right. big piece. If you were a principal Absolutely. flute in a, you know, in a Boston, yeah, they don't show up. Yeah, they don't show up and play the overture and the concerto and then Petrushka. They show up and play Petrushka sure. and somebody else covers the the other stuff. So um, it's great in one way and that, you know, i played a ton of repertoire. I love, love a lot of the concertos I've gotten to play. Um, uh, the, uh, what was it? Rachmaninoff third with Joyce Yang last week was so much fun to play because yeah. she was so great. And, um, it has a couple of nice flute solos in it and a lot of, uh, rests to count otherwise. <laughs> sure. Oh, same for us. Yeah. yeah. We don't play until the very end, like the last 16 bars right. of the second movement. Right. And that, it's right. Just, just put the horn down and you just get to listen. Listen, you know? right. Exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, we have, we have, I have like, oh, thousands, well, not thousands, a bunch of bars of rests, play five bars and then a bunch more bars of right. rests, play another five bars and then a bunch more rests and then play the end of the movement. Right. So, yeah. but yeah, so I got plenty of time to listen to her as sure. well. I just had to be a little bit more, I couldn't zone out quite as right, much exactly. as I would have liked to, to just listen. Well, I think to finish up here, uh, I always like to ask this question, and I'm very curious what your answer will be because Uh you've been through, you know, what you've been through, what we've talked about, you Mm -hmm. know, through, um, you know, having one job disappear, one job that you left would have disappeared if you were still there. And so this idea of maybe classical music is, quote, dying or people don't care about it or it's not relevant. And I would love to hear your opinion on why. 
you clearly believe very deeply in what you do and you right. work very hard at it. So what your opinion is uh, about why it sh- is relevant or why it should be relevant right. to a community or a culture. Right. And, um, you know, the things that surround that. What do you think? Um, I think that a lot of what we do now, as I kind of mentioned, is we not only have to play the music that we play, but a little bit we have to make the case for it in um, in a society that's increasingly has shorter attention spans, has so much that's available to um, to us. I mean, growing up, you could watch TV and there were, where at least where I was, there were three networks. That was, that was it. There wasn't even cable to watch. Um, and we got all of our programming because I lived in Alaska two weeks later than everybody else. The nightly news was a day later because there weren't satellites. So they would <laughs> send it up by tape on the airplane and we'd watch it a day later. So, so we got to watch living in the past. Right, exactly. So we'd watch, <laughs> you know, Monday night's nightly news on Tuesday night. So, um, and now, you know, and there were movies, you could go to movies, but, um, there was, I think if you wanted entertainment, a lot more of it was actually, I remember going to the Anchorage Symphony or going and seeing a play. And there was, there were those, those art forms that were happening. Um, now I think it's easier for people to never leave their house and have a lot of entertainment, not only in terms of what's on TV, there's, you know, Netflix and Hulu and all of all of that stuff. Um, so they get to not only watch TV, but pick what they want to watch. Why? So they're not, right. you know, surfing through. And that's even more of a reason to stay and right. be like, oh, I'd love to binge this show. Right. Or whatever, right. which is obviously everybody knows. Everybody listening knows we've all done it. Right. We've oh, all I been do there. It too. So totally. it's not like it's something we're bemoaning that right. it's, you know. No, but, there's great, there's yeah. great stuff. But I think in a world that has so many more choices for people, whether it's available to them in their own house. And I think that that's one of the things that's, that makes it more difficult is it, I mean, you can dial up, well, our podcast now, you can dial up podcasts, you can dial up books, audible books to listen to, you can, um, of course, everything in the world to watch, you don't ever really even have to leave your house, you can have things delivered to you yeah. in a way that, that really wasn't um, possible so much even 10 or 15 years ago. Um and so as a, a really living art form, I think we have to make the case for why do you leave your house? Why do you go somewhere else to, to do this? And one of the things I think about um, classical music in particular, you know, not just, you know, classical we use as a general term for what we do, but, um, you know, encompasses many, many different styles and, and um, types of music is that you're really coming to see something that's a living art form that uh, is reflective of the time that you live in and then also can kind of take you historically to times that you have not lived in. Um, you go and you listen to uh, a Bach oratorio and you think about what was going on in Bach's um, the, the in box time with the Reformation, with the changes that were happening, um, you listen to Mozart and see Mozart. I see as and the classical era as a real reaction to sort of the really ornate, complex music that happened before it. That also, if you look at any of the other art forms, architecture or art, they all mirror each other of what's going on at that that time. You look at Baroque architecture with all of the 
curly cues and the decorations and the ornaments. And you look at the music of the Baroque and it's very much that way. It's very complex, very noty. And then you move from that into classical music where there's Mozart and Haydn that's much more um, clean. And I don't think austere is the word, but it's just much more clean and much more organized and much simpler. Formulaic almost. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And much, well, and much just kind of simpler in, uh, you you look at a Bach or... um, aria from any of the cantatas and it's it's just a lot busier sure, sure. than looking at a, a mozart melody and uh, mozart's probably my favorite composer i love listening to especially like mozart piano concertos and the um the melodies that go with that and then you move like from that into a reaction into the into the romantic area through through beethoven who sort of bridges the gap there between that and from the romantic into the contemporary uh contemporary era and all of those for the people that were living in those times that was a living art form for them at that time but it's also for us playing that music i think it can carry us back to that time and i think all of those different types of music can speak to different people differently and you can listen to recordings at home, certainly of it. And like I was saying, you don't even really have to leave your home to do that. But I think that there's a really visceral experience to coming and being involved because as an audience, you're involved in that uh, performance. If we're if you're not there, it's not a performance. We're not we're playing for ourselves or it's very different. And I think you would agree to play, even if we do a straight run in a dress rehearsal, it's very different to play a piece for uh, an empty hall as it is to play for people who are actively involved. It's communication. And so we're really communicating that. So a lot of times when I'll talk to audience members, they have very specific, oh, I love Tchaikovsky symphonies, or I really love coming and listening to Mozart. And so I think it connects them to them on a, a level that um, as a live performance that is very different from listening to it in a recording at home or um, uh, pulling it up on, you know, even watching. And I do this too. I'll, you know, when there are performances that are recorded, I was watching the Lincoln Center New Year's performance um, this year <clears throat> with my mom in Alaska. And it's very different from actually watching. That was fun. It was great. It was fun to see people, you know, in the York. Oh, look, there's the flute player playing the Blue Danube that I always have to play each right. year. Yeah, yeah. Um, but to go to a live performance, you're part of that. You're part of the experience that's happening. And um, almost always, even people who have never come to an orchestra performance, if they can get there, it's they're amazed at it. It's just it's uh, I think it's it appeals not only to our sense of hearing, but there's there's a visual and watching it being made. I think you can feel it sometimes. I mean, certainly even on the stage, I can feel it when we get roaring uh, yeah, about yeah. about something um, really playing. And I just think it's a very um, it's it's like I said, it's a living art form that can both take us back to different times historically and then kind of move us forward too. And um, I think that you can find something for everyone in any particular orchestral performance. Um, there's music that I enjoy performing more than other, but there's every single piece that I play, I can find something that will speak to me. Um, I think in our 
society where uh, sports are so much at the forefront and particularly down here with football and the uh, the importance that it has. And it's great. I'm not I'm not getting ready to bash uh, football or sports, but I think the metaphor of what we do or the analogy between what we do and what a sports team does is is also kind of fun to look at. Um, you know, we're a team that's made up of <clears throat> 80 players. We're not 12 people on a field or how I'm bad. How many are on a football team at a any given I think point? 13. 13. You're there very you go. Close. close. But it's not <laughs> just 13 on a side that are trying to do something. It's 80 people in, in you know, working together in, to one goal to really to create something. And, um, I think that can be just kind of cool. And, you know, we do the same thing. If you were talking about your weightlifting or working with that, we all do that in our practice at home. We, you know, try and get ourselves in the best shape possible to be able to go to practice, to go to rehearsal, to work as a group together, and then ultimately to the, to the big game, to play the, to play the performances. And, um, I think, People who understand sports, if they can kind of look at what we do almost in that way, it, it really is truly amazing. All of the moving parts that have to come together on offense and defense sure. that we're doing at the Absolutely. same time to yeah. make it to make it happen. And um, I think in terms of it being kind of a living art. I think you mentioned Jim had talked about that. I totally agree. It's a living art form. It's not just uh, you don't go to a museum and look at a painting on the wall. You're coming to a concert and seeing actual organisms on the stage creating something in real time into that's hopefully um, something that will touch people in some way. And it's not necessarily always something beautiful. There's parts of music that are really raw and really disturbing. And I think that that has its place. Uh, that has its place too. Um, the quartet for the end of time. I love yeah, hearing that. I don't that's a play great it. Example. But, you know, that was a piece that was composed for strings and uh, clarinet in the concentration camps. Yeah, it's and pretty raw. It's I, I never hear a performance of that and go, wow, how beautiful. Right, I right. come out of it going, wow. I don't know, really know how I feel. Almost, that's how right. I am. Right, yeah. but it's, it's touched part of us that makes, yeah. a, that makes, that makes a difference. And, and, you know, there's certainly things that are just, you know, things that are uh, pure beauty, too. And I think a lot of what we do is that way. Um, you know, there's something that's just really a beautiful melody. And if people, a lot of times, I think if you ask people about important parts of their lives, uh, when they got married or when they graduated, or even, uh, you know, a summer in high school, a lot of what you'll can take you back to that time in a heartbeat is a piece of music. Um, you know, for me, I'll, I'll something, some oldie will come on the radio and very viscerally, I'll remember like, hanging out in my backyard in Alaska on one of the few really hot and sunny days and reading a book in the lawn chair trying to get a tan because <laughs> in Alaska that was a little tricky to do. Um, and that piece of music will bring me to yeah. that to that place and to that time or uh, music that you got, you know, that was the processional at your wedding or um, maybe when your first child was born or even if it wasn't such a gigantic life moment, Maybe it was the first concert that you went to. And I'm not talking just necessarily classical music. I mean, it was the first concert, you know, mm-hmm. rock concert you went to or something like that. And I think that in those ways, um, it just really becomes kind of ingrained as as part of us. And hopefully um, with the, the, work, the work that we do with the orchestra and so forth, we can... 
um, touch people in that way. They'll remember, oh, that's the first time I ever heard Beethoven five live. Or um, I, I remember talking to someone, and this has been years ago when we did Mahler second, they said, I never thought I'd get to hear that live here in Birmingham. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they did. And it was a, an amazing experience for them. Or was it just last year that we did the Verity Requiem or two years ago? Two something, that, maybe that? I'm two or that. even like two or three, three maybe. maybe. Yeah. But, um, you know, that's such an experience with, when, when, you know, that DS Irae hits or the big, yeah, you know, the, yeah. the antiphonal trumpet brass stuff that happens. Yeah. Or That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, we just did Rite of Spring or, you know, Carmina Burana, you know, and even if like the, some of the kids I taught, they said, well, what's that? I said, well, you've heard it in every horror film that you've ever been to, but there's nothing like being in a hall and having that, yeah, you know, that absolutely. first big O Fortuna hit. Um, so I think that there's just a, an element of um, just the fact that you can be there as part of an experience um, that involves both the people creating the art and you as the person that's kind of taking it in and listening to it, that um, is, is, it's just special. There's another, I don't, can probably try and think of a better vocabulary word, but hopefully it's something that, um, that really will touch your soul as well as just not just, oh, that's kind of fun to listen yeah, to that yeah. piece of music. Yeah, the deepness of it. Yeah, yeah. because if we're not doing that, then um, I, I'm not sure that um, we're doing – and it doesn't mean for every person every piece is going to be that. Right. But I think that if you come to the concerts, if you come and experience it, um, there will certainly be moments that are like that for you. Um, there are certainly pieces for me that touch me a little bit more deeply, but when I go and listen to a concert, um, it's, it's the same thing. I never have gone and listened to a concert and come out and went, huh, okay. You know, especially yeah. orchestral music. I always come out and go, wow, that was, that was amazing. I remember, um, going to listening to a Boston symphony, uh, concert that was the Scriabin, uh, poem of ecstasy, which yeah. is, it's an epic piece. Epic piece and horribly hard. And you know, I'd studied it in you know music history and music theory, but I'd never heard it live um, because it's horribly hard and it requires big numbers and all of that stuff. And I was just blown away. I mean, blown away by this piece. And I, it wasn't something that if I just kind of listened to it in a recording, because I'd done that. I'd done that as, and I was like, oh. Oh, fine. You know, I, yeah. I get the fact that it's very the chromaticism and the complexity of the composition and all of that stuff. And certainly it's like you're appreciating the piece. But when you're there, you're like experiencing. Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. a really good way of putting it. Exactly. And uh, and at that point, that was at the point where I kind of went, you know, because a lot of times when you choose, especially I was a younger person and had to kind of pick and choose what I could bargain money for, even at student tickets to go to. Um, I remember going back to Baltimore and um looking at the Baltimore Symphony stuff and thinking, I'm just going to try and go to as much as I can, whether I think it's a program that I'm really interested in. Because I think initially I would try and go, oh, that's a big flute piece. I'm going to go hear right. that. And uh, and I started just, you know, trying whenever I could to just plain old go, because it really taught me that the experience of being there live as part of it um, is a very different experience than just listening to a recording of it. Awesome. Hey! 
good. Um, I think that's as good a place to any okay, as end it, great. if you're all right. If anybody wants to find me, I just have a website, that's not spit.com. You'll find on the homepage links to listen to it. I also have a blog, which uh, will have information, kind of behind the scenes information about my thoughts about this conversation with Lisa and also a Spotify playlist. Well, I'll put some together, some music that she uh, she really likes and that you can kind of get to know her on that level as well. I want to thank Brandon Yoakum for mastering this episode, his work doing that. And I want to thank you, Lisa, for giving of your time and thank coming you. over early easy. in the morning. Yeah, this is <laughs> very wonderful. And I want to thank you, the listener, for listening to this episode. Yes. I hope you enjoyed it. Take care. Bye.